at the risk of undercutting my ethos, I want to recommend a reason to read Homer that might at first sound shallow or unimportant, the pleasure of it. Even in translation, several millennia after the original composition, the pleasure of experiencing the ennobling lucidity of the Homeric world. William Wordsworth writes in his preface to lyrical ballads that the one necessary thing for a poet is giving immediate pleasure to a human being possessed of that information which may be expected from him, not as a lawyer, a physician, a mariner, an astronomer, or a natural philosopher, but as a man. Wordsworth surely knows that it would sound more respectable to say that the poet's first task is to reveal the truth, but he goes on to defend his argument. I'm quoting, nor let this necessity of producing immediate pleasure be considered as a degradation of the poet's art. It is far otherwise. It is an acknowledgment of the beauty of the world, of the, excuse me, of the universe, an acknowledgment the more sincere because it is not formal but indirect. It is a task light and easy to him who looks at the world in the spirit of love Further, it is an homage paid to the native and naked dignity of man, to the grand elementary principle of pleasure by which he knows and feels and lives and moves. We have no sympathy but what is propagated by pleasure. Now, by pleasure, Wordsworth obviously means more than mere sensation <clears throat> because the pleasure of poetry comes from the complex satisfactions of experiencing the world remade and represented in language for the enjoyment of the imagination. Homer surely sets the standard because he pleases everywhere. Certainly in his famous similes, you know, hope somebody will bring up some of those later, but also in his way of giving us the world we inhabit the well-furnished palaces of kings, or the shelters of soldiers at war, the lions and wild boars, the attention to clothing and language, the young people in their games and dances. You probably remember the images on the shield of Achilles or the games that the Phaeacians, you know, play at, uh, sort of for Odysseus' amusement at Scaria the old men and their quarrels and judgments, the fields being plowed, the mountains, the unpredictable seas, the rootedness of real marriage and the ancient ritual. He focuses our attention on central actions in human life. In the Iliad, on the terrible cost of avenging insulted pride, especially the ultimate insult of being mortal. And in the Odyssey, on the difficulty of truly getting back to the home once possessed and now lost. Homer's world feels spacious, elemental, charged with presence. It's the opposite of what the philosopher Charles Taylor has called the disenchanted cosmos. In Dante's Inferno, Virgil calls the pagan world the time of the false and lying gods you remember that scene at the, the first canto or so of the Inferno. And of course we know what he means. 
But poetically, the presence of God provides what Wallace Stevens calls the necessary angel, a divine perspective on human things, a focus of importance. In Stevens' poem, which is really about poetry, this is a, a poem called Angels Surrounded by Paisan. The angel says, I am the necessary angel of earth, since in my sight you see the earth again, cleared of its stiff and stubborn man-locked set. In order to clear our own vision of our habitual perspective, we need to imagine the angel seeing the same thing we see. Now, when I think about this, I think about male students getting some of this effect if their mothers unexpectedly visit their dorm rooms. <laughs> but that's not quite what Stevens means. Homer accomplishes this clearing of sight with the intervention of God. And of course, this is true, particularly of Athena. You remember Athena at the very beginning of the Iliad, when Achilles is just he's drawing his sword, Agamemnon has just insulted him so mortally that Achilles is about to rush him and kill him. And Athena is standing behind him. She grabs him and turns him around, and he looks into the terrible eyes of Athena. That's this kind of moment that I'm talking about. But it's also other instances when you see gods appear and, and the, the human things that are around them suddenly look different. So imagine, for example, right at the beginning of the Odyssey, the appearance of Athena, who is disguised as Mentes, this friend of Odysseus, and she stands in the threshold of Odysseus' house in Ithaca. And Telemachus looks up. Nobody else pays any attention, of course. He sees the stranger in the threshold, welcomes him in, and everything hopeless about his situation begins to change in the conversation that follows. The presence of Athena, whom he recognizes afterward, alters the way everything in the household appears to him. You know, uh, you have in a distinguished guest into your house and everything suddenly looks different, right? Everything that's cheap looks cheap. <laughs> everything that's, you know, more worthy, you're sort of proud, right? All those things. Well, this is, this is the phenomenon that I think um, Telemachus is, is experiencing here. And I think that, you know, he looks around at the maids, at the suitors, at the furnishings, and everything suddenly has a different aspect to it. Stevens might even have this moment in mind when he writes his poem, because the angel in his poem says, I am the angel of reality, seen for the moment, standing in the door. One of the pleasures of the Odyssey is seeing ordinary things and people revealed as part of the larger weave of divine importance. Tonight, I'm going to take a minor episode from Book 14 as an example and give it what might seem undue attention. I think it reveals a good deal about the ways that Homer pleases by teaching us to see the ordinary things of our lives again. First, though, a word about Athena as the necessary angel of the Odyssey. From the very beginning of the poem, and just by the way, when I talk about Athena as, as an angel, bear in mind the book of Tobit. 
and the way that the angel Raphael appears to Tobias. There are a lot of similarities, you know, with, with the way that, to, that Tobias meets the angel, is guided by the angel, and, and what we're seeing in the Odyssey with Athena. Um, just saying, there's, a, you know, there's an interesting kind of parallel here. <clears throat> From the very beginning of the poem, Athena is the advocate of Odysseus, interceding with Zeus to release him from his long exile from home because of the long enmity of Poseidon, right, who's, you know, thinking of the curse, curse of the Cyclops. Um, her plan has several parts. First, to prod Telemachus to go in search of news about his father, then to get Odysseus from Calypso's island to the Phaeacians and safely home, and finally, in the action that comprises the second half of the epic, to complete the homecoming by uniting father and son and then providing for the slaughter of the suitors and the reunion of Odysseus and Penelope. After telling his story to the Phaeacians and receiving abundant gifts, Odysseus falls asleep on the ship that takes him home. The sailors set him down, they take him out, They're still, he's still in his bedding. They take that out and put it on the ground in Ithaca bring out all the gifts, you know, and leave him there. And when he wakes up, you remember, the first thing he says is, where am I now? You know, he doesn't recognize anything about uh, the island of Ithaca. And that's partly because of what Athena does to him. So she shows up, having made his homeland unrecognizable to him, and appears to him first as this young man, a herdsman of sheep, a delicate boy, such as the children of kings are. In this guise, she reveals to him that he's at home in Ithaca. And then Odysseus, what's your first response to someone if you're Odysseus? Tell a lie, right? <laughs> Tell a long, elaborate, you know, good lie, you know, so that has a lie that has some real purchase to it. But, but he tells, uh, tells a long story, and then um, she smiles at him, takes on the shape of a, um, a woman, beautiful and tall, and well-versed in glorious handiworks. This is a disguise, but closer to her nature. Then they have a poignant exchange, and Odysseus more or less reprimands the goddess. He says, there was a time when you were kind to me in the days when we sons of the Achaeans were fighting in Troyland. But after we had sacked the sheer citadel of Priam and went away in our ships and the gods scattered the Achaeans, I never saw you, daughter of Zeus, after that, nor did I know of your visiting my ship to beat off some trouble from me. But always my heart torn inside its, with my heart torn inside its coverings, I wandered until the gods set me free from unhappiness until in the rich territory of the Phaeacian men, you cheered me with words, then led me yourself in person into their city. In other words, Odysseus did not experience the presence of Athena even once during the entire decade of his wanderings. But now back on Ithaca, as they plot against the suitors, she taps him with her wand and transforms him. She withered the handsome flesh that was upon his flexible limbs and ruined the brown hair on his head and about him to cover all his body. She put the skin of an ancient old man. And this is your worst nightmare. 
And then she dimmed those eyes that had been so handsome. Then she put another vile rag on him and a tunic, tattered, squalid, blackened with the foul smoke. So he follows her advice not to go directly to his own palace, but to go in disguise to the hut of the swineherd, Eumaeus. So should it strike us as remarkable that the goddess Athena knows a swineherd on the, on the island of Ithaca? Athena clearly knows the habits of Eumaeus and the way he leads the pigs, to quote from the poem, near the rock of the raven and near the spring Arethusa, to eat the acorns that stay their strength and drink of the darkling water. For at least three books of the Odyssey, Eumaeus is at the center of the poem. He's the first one to welcome his old master when he returns to Ithaca, although he doesn't recognize him. Eumaeus protects Odysseus from the beginning, starting with the episode when he rescues the old beggar from his vicious guard dogs. Eumaeus has to call them off. In fact, he even has to throw stones at them to get them to stop attacking this unrecognized master. By the way, when you're reading the Republic, you know, and the image of the dogs comes up as guardians, I think Homer surely has in mind the unrecognized stranger, right? And then the way that the dogs, when they see Telemachus come home, they go out, they obviously know him, right? So the, the, the way that Plato's using the guardian image in the Republic, you know, pretty clearly draws on this. The shepherd's disciplined vigilance might remind us of parables in the Gospels about staying awake for the return of the bridegroom. As the steward of Odysseus' property, he hasn't faltered in his virtuous work, even though he's had no one supervising him for 20 years. At one point, he comments casually that a man loses half his virtue on the day he becomes a slave. But he's a figure of almost startling fidelity, corresponding to, to Penelope, whose similar fidelity keeps the possibility of restoration intact. Thinking of his excellence, one of my students last year pointed out, this is one of those moments in class you don't forget, that when Achilles says that, you know, that famous line in the underworld, don't try to console me for being dead, right? Um, even if I'm the king of all the glorious dead down here, I'd rather follow the plow as thrall to another man, one with no land allotted him and not much to live on than be a king over the parish dead. And this student said, that's, that's like Eumaeus, right? Eumaeus is that slave to another man who doesn't have anything, and yet his virtue, right? There's something about him that shines, and you know, for Achilles in the underworld, that, that kind of life is, is better than what he, you know, the ostensible good that he enjoys in the underworld. In book 14, Eumaeus invites the stranger into his hut and asks him his story, the occasion of another lie. Right, Odysseus claims to be from Crete. Do you know the joke there? You know, the Cretan paradox, all Cretans are liars. You know, you're from Crete and you say all Cretans are liars. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway. Every, every time Odysseus tells somebody where he's from, he starts with saying he's from Crete, you know, which <laughs> should be a tip-off. 
So he claims to be from Crete, the son of Castor, who fought in the Trojan War and had many misadventures afterward. In its way, the evening recalls in a sort of humble fashion what Odysseus says to the Phaeacians. If you remember when he first starts telling them their story, he says there's no occasion like this, you know, of more pleasure than when people get together, everybody's sitting in order, and the singer begins to sing, and the stories come. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of pleasure that of listening to the singer that we're also beginning to feel here in the hut of Eumaeus. So after Odysseus tells his story, Eumaeus makes sacrifices and gives his guests the choice cut of the meat and pours his wine. And afterwards, as they're sitting there, the cold of the night begins to come on. It's a cold, damp night. Um, Homer says Zeus reigned all night. And Odysseus in his rags wants to see if he can get some extra clothing from his host. He tells another story about he was, how he was on an ambush detail in Troy, led by Odysseus and Menelaus. And that night got very cold. He says, I and my carelessness when I started with my companions had left my mantle. I never thought I would be so cold, but went along with only my shield and my shining waist guard. So, you know, as the old beggar, he claims that he spoke to Odysseus about his situation and that Odysseus hushed him and then came up with a ruse, pretending that he had had a prophetic dream and that they were too exposed where they were, these men on this ambush detail, and that Agamemnon should send more men to them. So he spoke, and Thoas sprang up, the son of Andromon, quickly and took off and laid aside his red mantle and went off on the run for the ships, and I lay down in his clothes happily and rested until dawn of the golden throne came. I hope that makes sense. So Odysseus as beggar, right, old beggar, tells this story about when he was at Troy back in the old days when Odysseus led them on the raid, right, and then this whole ruse that Odysseus comes up with gets him the mantle to sleep under. So using this story, Odysseus then asks, if one of the swine herds will give him a mantle for the night. And Eumaeus tells him that he can have one, though he'll have to wear his rags again the next day. There are not many extra mantles and extra tunics here to change into. There's only one set for each man. So he promises greater generosity when Odysseus himself returns. But in the meantime, he does what he can for his guest. Quoting, so he spoke and sprang up, and laid a bed for him next to the fire, and threw the fleeces of sheep and goats over it. There Odysseus laid down, and Eumaeus threw over him a mantle that was great and thick, which he kept by him as an extra covering to wrap in when winter weather came on and was too rigorous. We could unpack this story a little bit and its ironies. The real Odysseus disguised as a beggar, makes up a story about the way that Odysseus tricks someone else into helping him out. The story obviously reminds Eumaeus of the cleverness of his master Odysseus, which Odysseus actually exhibits for Homer's readers in this very scene. So what's so clever about it? As a beggar, he doesn't simply whine that he's cold and he's asked for a mantle. 
but he gives the swineherds a good story that praises their master and then respects the good order of their household, or the household that Odysseus himself established and that they maintain. When Eumaeus gives Odysseus his mantle to cover him, the gift tells us a good deal about the understanding of disciplined virtue that radiates with such warmth from the Odyssey. Odysseus accepts the gift of his slave, a temporary gift that very quietly brings together a number of meanings important to the poem. So to understand the mantle of Eumaeus, we might think about what Odysseus wears or doesn't wear elsewhere in the Odyssey. Clothing is important in the Homeric world, where weaving is a major part of what we see going on with all the female characters. Penelope, of course, but also Circe, Calypso, and Arete. Athena is the goddess of weaving. Every piece of clothing is handmade. In the Iliad, Helen is first seen at her loom, weaving a great web, a red folding robe, and working into it the numerous struggles of Trojans, breakers of horses, and bronze-armored Achaeans. Penelope, of course, weaves and unweaves the Shroud of Laertes. In other words, clothing might well involve high art and thoughtful meditation on patterns and meanings. Clothing can reveal who you are, or it can conceal who you are. In Eumaeus' hut, Odysseus says that the swineherds slight me because I wear vile clothing upon me. Much earlier in the poem, Helena, Helen has told Telemachus about how Odysseus came into Troy, when she was still there, obviously, dressed as a beggar to spy on the city. And of course, he's going to use vile clothing at the end of the Odyssey, right, to wear into his own household to, to trick the suitors. If he appeared to them in his proper garments, he'd obviously be more easily respected, but also more easily recognized and killed. On the other hand, having no clothes at all poses its own problems. <laughs> now, you remember when he comes ashore and meets uh, Nausicaa, right? And in this regard, the most revealing preparation for understanding the mantle of Eumaeus is the sequence when Odysseus leaves the island of Calypso, sails to Scaria, the land of the Phaeacians, meets Nausicaa, and then finds his way into the palace of Arete and Alcinous. Calypso, let's think about Calypso for a minute. She could rightly be called the anti-Athena. Athena is the goddess of heroes, the one who brings their natures forward most fully, as she does with Diomedes in Book 5 of the Iliad. Hope you remember that. That's the day of his great Aristea, you know, when he, um, she actually at one point gets in the chariot with Diomedes, you know, and they attack Ares himself and spear him in the stomach. She, Athena is the goddess who offers fame and glory, whereas Calypso is by her very nature the opposite. Whereas Athena brings out of hiding, out of forgetfulness, Calypso holds in and immobilizes Odysseus. Her name means concealment or hiding, eclipse, right, and obscurity. Given the Greek word for truth, aletheia, 
She could almost be characterized as lethe and forgetfulness. She takes in Odysseus after he washes up on her island. And after seven years with her, Odysseus describes her to Arete and Alcinous in Scyria as a dread goddess. This is something we need to bear in mind, I think, when we consider who she is. One of my um, teachers, whom I enjoyed very much, said that he didn't think Odysseus had it so bad being on a desert island with an aerobics instructor for seven years. <laughs> and I enjoyed that. But on the other hand, <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't say much about the dread goddess, this, this woman this, who inspires terror. So what's dreadful about her has to come in part from her beauty. She says herself that Penelope is no match for her. Do you remember when Hermes comes to tell her, you know, Calypso says, why do you want to go back home? Or, you know, she's beautiful as I am. Odysseus has to admit that she's not. But this beauty obscures and consumes this hero who has come into her power. She holds Odysseus as a kind of erotic captive. She clothes him in the immortal. The, the word Homer uses it, the ambrosial clothing that she weaves on her loom. But he soaks it daily with his tears, as he later tells Arete and Alcinous. You remember that Calypso is always trying to get Odysseus to eat the nectar, I mean, the ambrosia and the nectar, because they would immortalize him and make him, you know, be there forever with her on her island. But he, you know, he steadily refused this, but he, he wears this ambrosial clothing. So Athena negotiates the release of Odysseus with Zeus, who sends Hermes to this island far from any other, as Hermes complains when he arrives there and finds Calypso singing as she works at her loom, in her cave. It's always interesting if someone lives in a cave, right? What does that mean, right? The other dread figure of the poem who lives in a cave is, is the Cyclops. She's repeatedly offered, as I mentioned, to make Odysseus immortal, which he's refused. But when Odysseus leaves her island, he wears the ambrosial garments of Calypso. He does not want immortal eclipse in her presence, but he wears her concealing immortality, so to speak, when he leaves the island. You remember the story. For 17 days, he sails with a good following wind until Poseidon spots him out on the ocean and sends the storm that wrecks the raft and hurls Odysseus overboard. Even though it weighs him down, He's almost drowned by it. Odysseus wears the clothing of Calypso until the last minute. It's the last thing that he has to strip away before he puts on the veil that the goddess I know, Leucothea, gives him and leaps into the sea to swim his way to Scyria. Calypso's ambrosial garments almost drown him. Calypso is death at sea that nameless and ignoble end that warriors fear. Again, the opposite of Athena. Having stripped off this obscuring allurement, Odysseus swims for two days 
and finally crawls exhausted onto the land at Scaria. If you remember, he has to pray to the river, you know, and it gives him a, a sort of way in, and he crawls up on the beach. One of the lightest comic scenes in the whole of the Odyssey comes the next morning, which is all about clothing. As Odysseus sleeps beneath a pile of leaves, very grateful for those leaves, you know, Athena sends a dream to the princess Nausicaa to take the dirty garments of her household down to the river mouth and the beach and to wash them in preparation for her anticipated day of wedding. Athena in the dream says, the shining clothes are lying away uncared for while your marriage is not far off when you should be in your glory for clothes to wear and provide too for those who attend you. With seven daughters, I have to tell you, I've experienced what, <laughs> what this passage is about quite often. Anyway, that, that day, Nausicaa and the other girls wash the clothes in the river and lay them out to dry on the beach and then play a game. You remember until the ball goes in the water and they shout, and that wakes up Odysseus under his olive tree. What's he going to wear, right? He's naked. His, all his tissues are swollen with being in the sea for two days, right? He's puffy with salt. There's nothing at all, so he hasn't eaten for two days. So he breaks off a branch to hold before him. I love the simile. And goes in the confidence of his strength, like some hill-kept lion who advances, though he is rained on and blown by the wind, and both eyes kindle. He goes out after cattle or sheep, it may be, deer in the wilderness, and his belly is urgent upon him to get inside of a close steading and go for the sheep flocks. So Odysseus was ready to face young girls with, we <laughs> with well-ordered hair, <laughs> naked though he was, for the need was on him. <laughs> right, the more you think about that, the funnier it gets. So Odysseus immediately clothes himself, but, you know, with, with what he says, you know, he doesn't have much going for him in terms of his looks. So he's standing there with his <laughs> leafy branch, and, and he says, I am at your knees, O queen. Well, he better not be literally, right? I am at your knees, O queen, but are you mortal or goddess? If indeed you are one of the gods who hold wide heaven, then I must find in you the nearest likeness to Artemis, the daughter of Zeus, for beauty, figure, and stature. So anyone else in this situation, naked and starving, might be tempted to go straight for the picnic baskets, you know. But Odysseus tells her, wonder takes me as I look on you. He tells her a story about a palm tree that he saw on Delos near Apollo's altar on one of his trips. And all this before he ever mentions his own need or asks for pity on him, you know, in some sort of rag to wear. So Nausicaa is, is already pretty taken with him. She, she allows him to bathe in a secluded place where he scrapes off the scurf of brine from the barren salt sea and anoints himself with olive oil and puts on the clothing that Nausicaa has given him. 
Then Athena accomplishes one of her cosmetic transformations. She makes him seem taller for the eye to behold and thicker. <laughs> and, and on his head, she arranges the curling locks that hang down like hyacinthine petals. So suitably impressed. Um, Nausicaa soon, you know, within a, you know, a few pages of this, she's offering to marry him, you know, in her guileless, in her guileless way. Oh, we better not go in together. Or one of the townsmen will say, oh, Nausicaa found a husband, you know. <laughs> Look at that. And, you know, the emphasis um, probably has her thinking that maybe this is what the goddess meant in the dream, right? Talking about get her getting married soon. Well, take the clothes out, find a husband, you know? It, it all seems to connect. But you remember that Athena herself leads Odysseus into the city and into the palace of Alcinous, where, you know, he has to win over white-armed Arete. You have to win over Arete whose name, of course, means excellence, right, virtue. Um, Nausicaa's mother. And when he gets there and is revealed, you know, I'm not sure exactly how this works in Homer, but, you know, there are a number of occasions when somebody's kind of concealed and taken along, and then at the last moment, the veil is kind of taken away. And there Odysseus is in the household of Arete and Alcinous. And Arete looks at him, with particular interest because she recognizes the mantle and tunic uh, that he has on because she herself had made them, right? These were clothes she had made, she and her housemaids. In other words, Odysseus, still a stranger, appears in the palace clothed as one of her own, wearing her own handiwork. And these clothes are the first he wears since stripping off the ambrosial clothing of, it, of Calypso. It's interesting to think that no other mortal, in fact, not even the god Hermes, ever saw Odysseus clothed in, in Calypso's ambrosial beauty. Just interesting to think about. This appearance in the clothing of Arete begins to reveal his identity in keeping with Athena's plan especially when he announces his name memorably at the beginning of book nine. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, and my fame goes up to the heavens. And then begins to tell the story of his great wanderings. In the story that he tells the Phaeacians, most famous part of the Odyssey, right? Books nine through 12. Um, from the first encounter with the Caconians right after they leave Troy, until the destruction of his ship before he washes ashore on the island of Calypso, there's not a single episode where clothing plays an important part, as it clearly does in the episodes leading up to this narration and the scenes following it in Ithaca. Or is there perhaps one such episode? Circe is the beguiling goddess of the poem, not so much an anti-Athena, as a dark double of the Olympian goddess. When Odysseus sends the others to explore the island, I mean, this island, and he goes up to a height and he sees the smoke coming up from a house in the middle, he sends the others to find out what it is. The men draw close to the house 
and wolves and lions. Remember this? Wolves and lions come out fawning like dogs that expect to be given some treat from their master. The men stood there in the forecourt of the goddess with the glorious hair and heard Circe inside singing in a sweet voice as she went up and down with a great design on a loom, immortal such as goddesses have, delicate and lovely and glorious their work. Odysseus mentions later that Circe gave him a mantle and tunic to wear because he resisted her magic. But what does Circe have to do with clothing otherwise? Maybe we should focus on what happens when Circe welcomes Odysseus' men into her house. She mixes malignant drugs into their wine to make them forgetful of their own country. When she had given them this and they had drunk it down, next thing she struck them with her wand and drove them into her pig pens and they took on the look of pigs with the heads and voices and bristles of pigs, but the minds within them stayed as they had been before. So crying they went in, and before them Circe threw down acorns for them to eat, and ilex and cornel buds, such, as, such food as pigs who sleep on the ground always feed on. When Odysseus finds them later, he describes them as looking like nine-year-old porkers. <laughs> Suppose we think of their transformation as a kind of anti-clothing, a more intense mode of concealment than Calypso's. At the same time, though, Circe reveals their inner simile, so to speak, by turning them into pigs. So Odysseus has a simile, right? Odysseus was like, when he was approaching Nausicaa, was like some hill-kept lion. And perhaps if Circe had succeeded with her magic and tapped him, uh, he would have become another one of the lions in her courtyard. You see what I mean? It's like, you know, you tap someone and whatever they are within is sort of what they become. So <laughs> she taps his men and voila, you know, a herd of, a, a herd of pigs. Circe resembles Athena in her capacity to transform others. Athena, too, manipulates shapes and appearances, making Odysseus either handsome or ugly, and she is the one who guides Odysseus to the man of pigs, a man unlike anyone he's met on his travels. The scene with Circe anticipates the Eumaeus episodes that follow it within a few books in the Odyssey where the pigs in their orderly pens surely remind Odysseus of his own men before Circe released them back once more into men, younger than they had been, and taller for the eye to behold, and handsomer by far. So once you've been a pig and you turn back into a man, you know, you've got everything going for you. <laughs> but this shimmer of likeness begins in the mind of Homer's reader. His men, Odysseus' men, sound more than a little like the well-fed suitors of Penelope who have the minds of pigs. And the pigs of Eumaeus remind us of Circe's pigs who have the minds of men. So we return to the hut of Eumaeus where Odysseus tells his stories 
in the divinely fashioned vile clothing of Athena, the loose old man's skin, the dulled eyes, all these directly provided by the goddess who has tapped him with her wand. Clothing, per se, was not a major theme in his wanderings, and neither was Athena. But now, paying attention to the presence of Athena as a guide and intercessor means being aware of the texture, the textile of events that becomes a coherent narrative, the weave, the text. As Odysseus says to her in Book 13, once she has assured him of her presence and support in overthrowing the suitors, come on then, weave the design the way I shall take my vengeance upon them. Literally, it's come on then, weave the matis, the matis, this, this charged word in the Odyssey. That's the, that's the characteristic that Odysseus uses to get out of the cave of the Cyclops. Right? That's what he brags about. We got out because of my matis, right? my, my cunning intelligence. And so now he's asking Athena to weave the matis. Tell me how we're going to do this. What's the skill, the wisdom that we're going to employ, the craft? So embedded in the Odyssey is Odysseus' decade of unraveling you know, the godless years of Poseidon's curse when he's calypsoed and, you know, characterized by loss and futility. But when Athena resumes her active role, the pattern begins to emerge, and the pattern reveals the meanings that quietly accumulate in the mantle of Eumaeus as part of the meaning of his homecoming. So let's return to the image itself. After a night of drinking wine and telling stories, Eumaeus makes a bed by the fire for this Cretan stranger. He lays down the fleeces of sheep and goats to make it comfortable. There Odysseus lay down, and Eumaeus threw over him a mantle that was great and thick, which he kept by him, and so on. This is the man clothed by goddesses and queens, the hero whose fame goes up to the heavens, who admits his need and happily accepts the gift of his own slave. Eumaeus is the man whose piety toward the gods and whose practice of virtue, despite the circumstances of enslavement, in many ways reintroduce Odysseus to the discipline he once fostered in others. Characteristically, Odysseus tricks his way into getting the mantle but in doing so, he reveals the underlying integrity that remains in his estate. Eumaeus covers him with it, not knowing who he is. We might think of the mantle next to the shroud of Laertes that Penelope wove and unwove for three years as she was putting off a decision to marry one of the suitors. The shroud was a ruse, true. But the ruse involved a pious way of honoring the old man, her husband's father. She wanted to put into the weave the story of his accomplishments so that the literalness of his dead body would be covered and hidden by the record of his importance. You might think of this in terms of the poem itself. The mantle of Eumaeus doesn't have the same elegance. It has no design woven into it that we know about. 
but it has its analogies. It covers the greatness of Odysseus with plain goodness in the most literal way. Odysseus, the master of the household, has come back unrecognized. He goes into the house of a servant whose every act and word reveals his continuing loyalty. Without knowing it, he treats that very master with the respect he deserves because of his piety to Zeus and the discipline of his own virtue. He clothes his master, we might say, in that generosity and virtue, and so prepares him for his full return to responsibility for his own household. Odysseus is protected by the garment of the slave, and yet the slave possesses the virtues which he himself needs to recover. This is Athena's doing. Suppose that without her guidance, he had ignorantly gone directly to his own household without this interlude with Eumaeus. For this moment of the poem, then, we simply enjoy the image of Odysseus after his travels, warm in the literal mantle and in the trust that it signifies. We might think of Telemachus sort of in a corresponding way. Telemachus, I bet you that as a boy, Telemachus loved to go out to the hut of Eumaeus. Why? Right? Because of the same thing that Odysseus is experiencing here. We see the affection between Eumaeus and Telemachus when Telemachus returns at the beginning of book 16. There's this moment of warm recognition, even tears, on Eumaeus' part. So, you know, this sense of being at home that Odysseus feels here, I think without the need of the full responsibility he's soon going to have to um, take. It's not an idea we're looking at here, I hope, but a more attentive and, ex and intense experience of an image. I always like to quote John Crow Ransom's description of the poetic image in his essay, Poetry, A Note in Ontology, where he writes, he's quoting Ransom, the image cannot be dispossessed of a primordial freshness which idea can never claim. An idea is derivative and tamed. The image in the natural or wild state, and it has to be discovered there, not put there, obeying its own law. Excuse me, the image is in the natural or wild state, obeying its own law and none of ours. We think we can lay hold of image and take it captive, but the docile captive is not the real image, but only the idea, which is the image with its character beaten out of it. <laughs> Images like this one of Odysseus, beneath the mantle of Eumaeus, become part of the weave of the poem, and meanings accumulate in them, perhaps no much, not so much thought out at first, as felt out uncritically through the experience of the pleasure of the poem. I suppose I'm making an argument about the right way to read Homer. That is, not to beat the character out of his images by taming them too quickly into docile ideas. First, we need to take pleasure in them. The good reader enters a mythical imagination outside of history, but also deeply interior to the nature of time as we actually live it, the texture of our earthliness, 
The Odyssey draws upon the permanence of relations and natures, but also upon the experience of change. And the more attentively the reader imagines what the poem gives in all its texture, the more fully he or she enters what Heidegger calls a presence sheltered by absence. We're never literally in a swineherd's hut 3,000 years ago, but when we enter it imaginatively, it saves us from the limitation of circumstance and frees us momentarily from the burden of our own roles and identities, which are part of what Stevens calls the stiff and stubborn man-locked set that the angel of reality can help dispel. Many of the most memorable scenes of the poem follow this quiet episode of the mantle of Eumaeus. The return of Telemachus, Odysseus' entrance into his own house as a beggar, that moment with Argos, remember, Argos looks up, hears the voice of Odysseus after 20 years, wags his tail, dies, you remember that. And then Odysseus meeting in disguise with Penelope. You might remember how she tests this beggar who showed up and claims to, claims to know Odysseus. She says, tell me what sort of clothing he wore on his body. And his answer is, a woolen mantle of purple with two folds and a shining tunic like the dried out skin of an onion, so sheer it was warm so sure it was and soft and shining bright as the sun shines. And she goes, yes, you know, that, that's exactly what he wore when he left Ithaca. A few books later, after the contest of the bow, Odysseus strips his rags, rags from him to begin the slaughter of the suitors. Each scene, to return to my original point, is suspended in the medium of poetic pleasure that comes through the rhythms of language, this protean play of the mind on comparisons, the many recognitions of familiar things represented in poetry, and most of all, the pleasure of the unfolding action, with, which begins with Athena's first intervention in book one and goes all the way through Odysseus' reconciliation with the offended townsman at the very end of the poem. So, we might ask a number of questions, but let me just ask this. Why is it that the Odyssey ultimately feels so consonant with the Old Testament in its depiction of the punishments of sensuality and perfidy and so profoundly pre-Christian in its elevation of simple, hidden people into rewards they could never have expected? I said at the beginning of the poem, of the beginning, that the poem is about the difficulty of getting back to a home once possessed and now lost. Odysseus could not do this on his own. I mean, that's, that's clear from the outset. He needs a saving intervention, a cooperation with Athena, which seems to be an image of the gift of grace that might be hoped for, but cannot simply be seized by an act of will. When Wordsworth writes of poetic pleasure as a task, light and easy to him who looks at the world in the spirit of love, he might be talking about the grace that we recognize in reading Homer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>